Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December the 12th, 2014. This is episode 1483 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, that's right. It's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those of you without uh, letters on your dial for whatever reason, that's 866-658-4465. You can dial those numbers. You'll get a voicemail message. You can leave me a call, and I might put it on a show in the future. The formula to get on the show is one, call from a quiet area. Two, make sure if you're using a cell phone, there's not a lot of static on it. Three, talk into the phone at the same distance for the entire call. Do not turn your head away from the call like this and then come back to the phone like that. That is maddening. And there's actually a really good call on today that the audio sucks. And it's probably because the rules weren't followed, but it's such a good call I put it on anyway. You'll recognize it when it comes on. Don't do that. It takes a really good call to get past the uh, the requirement for reasonable audio. Anyway, uh, and the other thing is, make your point or ask your question immediately in one to two sentences maximum, and then give your details. It will be much more likely to get through my screening process, which has to go lightning fast, because I do all this stuff myself. Anyway, before I get to your questions, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Jeff is awesome. I just got a full-on kick-butt Berkey system for my son and his new soon-to-be wife for Christmas. I'm going to say that quietly because he might still be here in the house. I know he doesn't listen to the show, so I can say that. But, you know, Jeff did a great job of getting that to me uh, right away. A lot of the systems are not available for shipping until January right now. But the, the big Berkey that I ordered was I got new filters for my own. I got one of the new priming things for the Berkey filters. It works so much better. The, the, the little primer pump ball thing is so much better than using that thing you shove up against the faucet. So if you're going to get new filters, get one of those. It's well worth a couple bucks they cost. Check it out today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. We all know Berkey's are great water filter systems, but hey, why would you get your Berkey from anybody but the Berkey Guy himself? Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at Directive21.com where he has not just Berkey's but a lot of other great stuff for your prepping needs. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. Um, I am a huge believer in diversification of your wealth, and I believe that a number of 5 to 10% of your net wealth into precious metals makes a lot of sense in a world where the plan for money is to make it worth less over time. It's not it could happen. It is the plan. The people in charge of the Federal Reserve, if you ask them, what is your plan for the value of money over time? And they will tell you to devalue it by about 2% per year. That's the goal. Like sometimes they do more, sometimes they do less. Sooner or later, it kind of averages out to be about 3% because they're not very good at what they do, honestly. And that's the number that you get when you figure out that they lie about it, and it's more like 4 or 5%. To put this in perspective, imagine you put $100,000 under your mattress, When they inflate the monetary supply, it's no different than some thief from the Federal Reserve breaking into your home and taking $5,000 out from under your mattress this year. That's what 5% inflation is. Gold and silver is how we hedge against that known loss. 
And when it comes to getting my gold and silver, I like personal service, I like great pricing, and I like good quality people. I find it all at JM Bullion. It's where I buy my gold and silver now. It's where I think you should, too. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Remember, JM Bullion, the Berkey Guy, and many other folks do give discounts to members of my support brigade. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. All I'm going to say about that today, let us go straight to the year that was the episode. I have two for you today. In 1483, the King of Car Parks and the first Flemish result. I'm going to read to you the King of Car Parks. King Edward IV of England has been dying since Easter, so he names a regent for his young son, the Prince of Wales, until he comes of age. That regent is Richard, the Duke of Gloucester. He is a man with a deformity, a bent spine due to scoliosis. Although the deformity is severe, he can hide it well enough with clothing. The king finally dies, but before the prince can be crowned, King Edward's marriage is ruled illegitimate so that his son is no longer eligible to be king. Richard is named king in his steed, but the kingship will be short. He will be killed in battle two years later. Shakespeare will write a play entitled Richard III and will place the, in the king's mouth those famous last words, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. In fact, what the king will get is an axe to the back of his head. His burial place will remain unknown until 2012 when the ground-penetrating ground radar will reveal a skeleton under a parking lot in Leicester. DNA evidence will prove that it is him. As of 2014, people are still fighting over where his final resting place will be. Wow, really? Two years to figure out where to bury a guy you dug up from underneath the car park just because he had the name King? Aren't you glad we don't have people with the name King running our country? This is how the world was run for a long time. And this is why it drives me crazy. Here's how I'll bring it to modern day, my thoughts. When, when uh, what's it, Kate and, and whoever the prince is that got married, I don't even know which prince it was, I don't care, but Kate... Upton or whatever is the new princess of Wales or whatever. Ugh. And people are fawning over this crap and watching the TV and little girls are dreaming of being a princess one day. Having a monarchy sucks, right? So we shouldn't really care about monarchies anymore, in my view, right? Because we had a monarchy that was ruling this place when it was called the colonies and we kicked their ass out. That's why we don't have the queen on our money, Canada. Just saying. Anyway, with that... Uh, let us get into the main talk, topic of today's show again, which is your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Let's go ahead and take that first call right away. Hey, Jack, this is Anthony from Long Island. Um, I was a little bit behind in the shows. I was just listening to the one at the end where you talked about what they spray the Roundup with the wheat and all. Question, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about on the show bread machines. I was thinking to the kids and all, we eat a lot of sandwiches and so forth, the school lunches. Do you know anything about bread machines? Is that a good idea? If I get myself some organic flour, just make some loaves of bread every week or something like that. Just give me your opinion, man. Love the show. Take it easy. Uh, there's kind of two sides to that question. Uh, one is unasked but will be answered, and the other is asked and will also be answered. So the first thing is you eat a lot of bread, and you're going to make bread every week and eat bread every week. I'm going to personally tell you I don't think that's the best idea, and I'll give you some practices I think you can follow that would make it less of a bad idea. But I think that if you're living on wheat as a staple, uh, you are putting a toxic substance into your body, even if you're using organic heirloom ancient wheats, uh, and even if you're doing some of the things I'm going to talk about. However, let's go back to the question about bread machines. If you're going to make bread often, what do I think about bread machines? I think they're awesome. 
I think you're awesome. I think you're awesome even if you don't use them to bake your bread. I think the fact you can take a bread machine and throw all the stuff in there and set it on just the knead and let it rise and let it knead again and it'll do it all by itself. You can pop it out and bake it as normal if you want to. I think that's great. And I think they come out pretty good anyway. So I'm fine with bread machines. I am not fine with bread machine mixes. First of all, I think they rip you off. Um, they just flat out rip you off because most 99% of what's in there is flour and you can get all the other ingredients and you can make a much better bread on your own. Okay, so I, I am not a fan of, um, of bread machine mixes, but if you're going to make your own bread and put together your own mixes, that's great. If you are going to use organic flour, especially if you're going to go to some portion being whole wheat, I think you get a much healthier product or a much less bad for your product, uh, for your body product. I think high carbohydrate, refined carbohydrate in the form of white flour, I think is, is not a very nutritious way to live. But if you want to, I'm not going to tell you how to live. Right. And I think you're definitely taking things up a notch in quality and in health by going to organic or known safe production methods of wheat or other grains that you're using for your flour. So what I mean by that is if you had a local producer growing wheat in really a beyond organic way, uh, biodynamics or something like that, and they weren't registered as a USDA organic, I would be just as fine, if not better, with that as your source. If you have a local source of someone available like that, or if you're going to go ahead into the mass product world, which is hard to do otherwise with something like flour, since it's such a commodity, yes, organic is definitely higher quality. Now, on bread machines, expert council member Stephen Harris in particular loves them. He likens it to this way. Um, making bread today with a bread machine is like washing your clothes with a washing machine. You could go get some rocks in a river or a washing board and scrub with that, or you could get a, a washing machine like most of us do. And in the past, that's what people use, and now that's what people should use. I don't know if I'll take it that far, because making bread by hand is not that hard, but this is what I believe about using a bread machine. Because you can set everything up to where it's a, a point, kind of a point and click mentality, a set it and forget it mentality, and even doing with what I'm about to tell you that requires a little bit of extra step, you're more likely to use it, you're more likely to do it than back in the day, you know, my grandmother made bread every week because she did, she just chose to, right? And she was a, she was a typical housewife that grew up through the Depression and through the 50s and 60s, and that was just kind of, her self-chosen station in life, partly assigned, I guess, by society, and partly her, just she loved doing it. But today in the modern world, most people don't do that. So the fact that I can take all the ingredients, put them in there, push a button, and it'll do it, I think makes it more likely that you'll, you'll not eat mass-produced garbage. And again, even though I'm not a huge fan of eating a lot of bread, if I have a choice between homemade, real high-quality bread from known ingredients versus what comes out of mass production... Even if it says organic on the label, I'm going to go homemade. It tastes better, it's higher quality, and it's probably got less toxins in it. Okay. Now, the next thing is, from the work of Dr. Weston Price, we know for a fact that most societies that have grain as a staple in their diet are using some sort of a fermentation process in the consumption of that grain, and they have none of the health problems in general that modern society has, what we call lifestyle illnesses. With bread, the way to do that is through the production of something called sourdough. And sourdough is not sourdough just because the label says so. Sourdough is a process whereby 
wild yeast and fermentation are allowed to break down the, the, the flour and contribute to its rise the way a conventional yeast does. Okay? But through the process of souring, we're actually making what is considered by most honest people today that have done the biochemical research to be something that has toxic effects on the body. Whether you think wheat is a toxin or not, there are certain detrimental effects to all humans by eating wheat. We are not designed to eat wheat. And I'll explain it to you how simple this is. Birds are designed to eat wheat. Birds have a gizzard. It's designed to take wheat berries and other hard seeds and grind them up so the bird can eat them. You don't have that. You're not made to eat wheat. So we already have to process the wheat in some way to make it edible. Most foods that humans are supposed to eat, you can pick it up and eat it. You can take up an animal and yank the skin off it, rip meat out of it, and eat its flesh. You probably shouldn't for a variety of reasons in the modern world, but you can. You can't If you try that with wheat berries, you can end up sick and dead. Because right? you're going to choke to death on the chaff, if nothing else. Okay, So bear, wheat and barley and rye and things like that are not normally human food. And we're already going to a certain level of processing to harvest it, to thresh it, and to grind it or process it some other way so we can consume it. Sourdough is one more step in that processing, a fermentation, a natural fermentation process that reduces some of the toxic effects that we'd have on human beings. You can make real sourdough in a bread machine. And if you're going to eat bread, I highly recommend you add that step and you learn how to do it and make a starter and keep it going. And it's dead simple. And I have a simple little article for you guys that are in the show notes today where you can learn how to do just that. Make your own sourdough bread in a bread machine. And again, my reasoning for being a huge fan of bread machines is if you're going to eat bread, I believe if you have a machine that you can dump your ingredients into and push a button, you're more likely to make enough bread in whatever timeline there is that you will make your own bread. And I'll tell you, I'm not adverse to eating some real sourdough bread. I think it's amazing. And you can start doing some variations with it and all. And I don't have a problem with people eating bread at all. If that's your choice, that's what you want to do. I'm telling you, I've, I've pulled it out of my diet. It's done better for me. And when I do eat it, I prefer to eat something like a sourdough. And I prefer to eat it in modest portions. Just saying. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Brian from Delaware. The other day I heard a call, I believe it was episode 1427 or 1428, about supplemental heat. Uh, you had mentioned in your answer using buddy propane heaters and kerosene heaters, and then you had a little disclaimer about kerosene heaters. I just thought perhaps this would be helpful if you could use it uh, at some point. This is what I do. I use kerosene heaters all the time. I have two... Dynaglow 23,000 BTU heaters, the barrel type. And by having two, I always rotate them so one is always up and running. We have electric heat and it's very expensive in the winter. So we use uh, the kerosene as supplemental heat and it works very well in our home. But this is the trick. I've been messing with them a few years. If you continually use them and you don't ever dry burn the wick, that's when you get into trouble. It burns inefficiently. The flame doesn't get into that range. It's safe. And um, it's just you, you, you wait for a lot of fuel. But what I do is every time I use one tank of fuel, I take it outside. Whatever's left in the tank, I pump out. I then dry burn the wick until it goes completely out. 
then once it's completely out, I light it one more time and let it burn. It'll burn maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then it goes out. And then the wick is completely soft and clean, no carbon deposit. I, I then fill it up, let it sit an hour, and that one's ready to go. Meanwhile, I have the other one in the house using, and then when the one in the house is empty, I take it out and bring the one that I just prepped in. So that way I'm never without heat, and they're always up and running and burning very well. Um, but I find that you have to dry burn it after every use. That's when you really keep it in that sweet spot of just burning correctly and there's no odor. Oh, and I also, uh, I'll take the, um, the top off, the little, uh, little cover on the top, and take uh, a rag and just kind of wipe the inside of the barrel and get all that black carbon pops out. Um, okay, the, the this call is the call that I mentioned in the, the segment that had a lot of the fade and back and fade and back, and I, I amped the hell out of it. And equalized it. And the first call actually had a lot of static and fading back too. And these are two calls that got on the air in spite of the fact that they were very difficult to make the audio work. I had to put about, I'd say a good 10 minutes of work on the audio in both of them to get them to the level you just heard. So please do me a favor. Please do me a favor. When you make a phone call, find a quieted area. Please do so. Please speak into the phone. Please don't turn your head back and forth on the phone. And if you're using a cell phone, please make sure that there are bars on the phone. I included both of those calls because they were good calls. I'm trying to help you guys help me. I'm not trying to be a pain in the ass or anything. I'm not trying to nitpick. I'm not coming down on anybody. I'm just saying there are calls that come in every week that I would like to use that are far worse than these that I can't fix. And I'm trying to help you make a call where the audio quality is such that the people on the other end can hear what you're saying. And if you've made a call and not ever heard it on the air and thought, that was a really good call, this might might be the reason. All right, so let's talk about this call. Um, so I agree with the principle so much that I cleaned up the call. I agree with the frequency not. I, I think it's excessive and far more than is necessary. Um You can go through a tank, when you say a tank, uh, on a heater fairly quickly. Uh, it doesn't take that long if you're using kerosene heaters uh, to go through what a heater will hold. Uh, so I think it's excessive. I think the procedure is perfect, and that's why I include it. So when we were doing this in Pennsylvania, we did it for the exact same reason. I had electric baseboard heaters. There is not a way to throw away more money on your electric bill than to live in a northern cold climate with electric baseboard heaters with a sizable house. It is a terribly inefficient way to heat a home, especially an open concept home. I don't think they're that bad in a situation where they're inside a room and we can heat a room with them and, and be at lower temperatures and the you know uh, zone-based stuff. I think they can actually be useful that way, but they're horribly inefficient. And when you're trying to heat a whole home with them, they just make the meter spin like crazy. So we got a couple of kerosene heaters. I went through that procedure that the caller uh, uh, mentioned almost to an exact replication about once every two to three weeks. That, that was what we normally did about once every two, I'd say about every two weeks would be more accurate. We also had two, and I would do two on the same day. I would pick a nice day outside where even though it's kind of cold, it wasn't that cold. The sun's up. You're getting the radiant heat of the sun. You've got the, you know, you take it out in the morning. You, you do that, including the remove the top, wiping out the inside. That's a great tip uh, that we always did because my dad taught me to do it, but I've, I don't know that I've ever said so on the air. 
The other reason I played this call isn't just because it's a good procedure for those using kerosene. It also is to back up and fix something that I did, like, duh, stupid with, um, with the call that precipitated this. So a guy called in. He said he has natural gas to, uh, to, for his stove and for his, um, his water heater and wanted to be able to run a natural gas generator using the, um, the gas from the, uh, the system to be able to run a generator. And his primary concern was being able to heat his house if the power was out for an extended period of time. Well, I kind of brain farted. Dude, put some space heaters in and have it plumbed professionally so that you can run space heaters off your natural gas when your power's out. Uh, that was kind of a dumb moment for me, so I wanted to back up and fix that one. I'd say anybody, if you have natural gas to your home, or you have a sizable propane pig, if you want to call it that, a big old tank for your, your gas needs, and you're worried about supplemental heating, put in some, some gas space heaters and run some lines to them off that gas. That is, It is always more efficient. And this is why in that episode, and I was trying to make it universal, which is probably why I, I kind of slipped there with, you know, backup heating, went with space propane heaters that, you know, use a tank uh, or using kerosene, is, is because they're direct energy methods. In other words, we take a, a fuel source, we burn it straight to heat, and we release the heat into the house. That is much more efficient than the power company or your generator doing the same thing, converting it to electricity, and then bringing the electricity back to heat. So that's maybe why I brain farted there. But there you go. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Max from Georgia. I had a question on ammo storage. I've seen where guys want to vacuum seal ammo up so that way it doesn't corrode. Is there a possibility that this would reduce the amount of oxygen in the round and would basically, when you pull the trigger, you're not going to get as much kick but due to a, a, a less of an atmosphere in it? I might be going overboard, but it, just, it seems like one of those random thoughts. If you can put a shell underwater and fire it, what's to stop it from having a lack of oxygen from vacuum sealing it? Appreciate it, brother. Keep up the good work, and thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to tell you not to vacuum seal your ammunition for a totally different reason than what you're asking about. The concept that, okay, I take my, my, you know, my Remington uh, yellow and green box, 3006, put it in a vacuum sealer, and then when I do that, I'm going to suck all the air out of the cartridge, and then when I fire it, there's not going to be enough oxygen in order to fully burn the powder is just wrong thinking. It's just completely wrong. It's not even possible. And there's a reason. There's a reason smokeless powders are smokeless. Because they provide their own oxidizers. It's the primary reason that you, when you fire your 3006 or your 308 or your 5.56 out of your AR, you don't see this big cloud of blackish blue smoke come out of the end of it anymore like back in the muzzleloader days because it burns clean, and one of the reasons it burns clean is part of the mixing process of the powder, and so the powder is self-oxidizing, so it doesn't rely on on external oxygen, so it burns. it's one of the reasons it burns cleaner and therefore provides less of a smoke screen after you fire it. So it just doesn't matter. So that's that's kind of the end of that. That's so. Why am I going to tell you not to vacuum seal your ammo? I think it's pointless. I have ammo that I bought. Oh God, I guess ten, twelve years ago. Eight millimeter Mauser ammo. 
it has to have been at least 12 years ago. I bought it when I was living in Pennsylvania, for God's sakes. And it was Turkish Mauser 8mm ammo that originally had been machine gun belt ammo that had been taken off the belts and put onto five-round stripper clips for Turkish Mausers. And it came in these bandoliers that were made from like recycled material that the Turkish military used when they were gearing up for World War II in the 30s. So what that meant is that the ammo was put into those little bandolier things in the 30s, and it came from ammo that was older than the 30s. And this was corrosive ammo. It had corrosive primers in it. This ammo had been around forever, and I'd say 90% of it fired perfectly. And with the exception of a few rounds that were so old and messed up that you could actually use your fingers and pull the slug out of it, most of it was in great condition. It had been stored like that since the 30s and was being sold by Cheaper Than Dirt for, I think, $3 a bandolier back then. I don't even know if you can get this stuff anymore. I'll, I'll check real quick when I'm done with recording this answer and see if it's available if anywhere. And if it is, I'll put it on, uh, I'll put a link to it. Actually, I just paused and looked it up. I found some on arms list for 25 bucks for 70 rounds on one of these bandoliers. And I can tell you, their bandoliers look a little bit nicer than the crap that mine were in. Uh, and that, that ammo looks exactly the same though. 25 bucks. They were giving this stuff away, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And now I guess it's a collectible. That's something to keep in mind when stuff comes into the, the surplus market heavy and it's cheap. You might want to lay some up. I just saying as kind of a, a souvenir type, uh, an investment. In fact, the stuff I'm looking at is from Turkish manufacturer from 44 to 53. So it's actually a lot newer, and that's why the bandolier looks different. If I can find one of my old bandoliers laying around, I'll take a picture of it. This stuff looks like military-grade material that these bandoliers are made out of. The stuff from the, the, the supply I'm talking about was like old recycled green cotton stuff that was like from clothing. So it was even older than this stuff, and it, it, it worked very well. The reason I, I go through all this to tell you that is, You just don't need to do it. I've never been big on vacuum sealing ammo. If you want to store your ammo properly, store it the way the military does. Put it in an ammo can and close the ammo can. Done. That's it. No more. You don't need desiccants. It wouldn't hurt, but it's not necessary. Ammo is extremely stable. You know all the rumors that they changed the primers a couple years ago because Obama wanted to, and ammo's only good for two years now. It's all bullshit. It's not true. You don't need to do anything with your ammo. Keep it dry and cool. That's it. So don't worry about it because don't do it. I think you're just, for every bit of energy you spend vacuum sealing ammo, you could vacuum seal something that you might need to vacuum seal. More on that in a bit. Uh, that might, you know, like you would eat or something like that. It's just not necessary. Um, I have actually never found like a whole box of ammo go bad. If I've had a bad box of ammo, it came that way. It's just like a bad run. Winchester White Box, sometimes you'll find a bad run or something. But, uh, man, I just I have ammo that I hand-loaded myself that is set in a wooden plywood uh, footlocker for, for 10 years since I loaded it with just, I mean, in a, in a plastic shell case box, and you take that out and fire it, it fires just fine. Um, you can get ammo to go bad, but you got to abuse it. Kept in a relatively decent environment, it's, it's more shelf-stable than you'll ever be. I'll put it to you that way. Let's take another call and 
don't waste your vacuum sealer energy on ammunition. Hey, Jack, Jason from PA here. I just wanted to tip you and your listeners off to a rather interesting site. It's doityourself.org, D-I-Y.org. Um, basically, it's kind of like, here's how you do things, but with a strong focus towards children. Check it out. I think you'll be impressed. Yeah, it's a very cool site, and it, it really is geared toward kids, and there's a tremendous amount of information there. I mean, I really don't have anything to add. Again, it's called DIY.org. Uh, those of you with kids, I would say the next time they say, well, how do I do this? Like, go there and let's see if we can figure Now, I would just say go there and do it, right? Uh, unless you have a kid that maybe needs a little bit of kick in the butt like that. But you might be, why don't we go onto this site and see if we can figure out how to do it together and let them take the lead. Uh, let's take another call. Thanks for, uh, for bringing that uh, site to our attention, Jason. Hi, Jack. This is Paul from South Louisiana. I've got a more lighthearted question um, for the phone-in call, I mean, for the phone-in show. Um, I am making a Saison beer this weekend, and I would like to know the best time to add fruit into it. Um, now that everybody's got abundance of fruit on their property, I'd like to kind of tie this in with home brewing. Um, and I know that you know this, but I'm not sure that the audience does. But uh, your expert panel member, Nick Ferguson, is a great home brewer, so I'd like to direct this question to him. If I'm brewing a saison this weekend and I'd like to add cranberries in into the mix, what is the best time and the best way to do that? Thanks. Well, this one was short notice, but I did get um, uh, this over to Nick this morning, and he's already gotten us a response. So uh, I'll play you Nick's response to this, and then I'll come back with my added thoughts on it. <laughs> uh, hey, Paul, this is Nick Ferguson from Louisiana um, calling in to answer the Saison beer question. I'm sure Jack is probably laughing right now. Um Okay, so I know you probably already know this, but for the sake of the listeners, I'll just explain how fermentation is kind of going to go. Um, when you're fermenting a beer or anything, really, there's going to be a bell curve of activity. And uh, with beer, you're going to see that bell curve peak at like between day one, day two, and day three, um, depending on how much sugar is in the beer, how much yeast you pitched, but let's just assume it's a standard 5% ABV beer um, and and you pitched the, you know, a standard like vial of white labs or a packet of Y yeast or um, one packet of dried yeast. <clears throat> um, with a, a steady temperature, you should see that beer finishing most of its fermentation on day three. It should be pretty much done on day three. So what I would do is I would add that towards the end of your fermentation, but before the yeast starts going dormant again. So like on day three or four is when I'd add that fruit. And the reason why you want to add your fruit towards the end of fermentation is you don't want all that activity and all the production of CO2 to basically blow out all your aroma and flavor components. Um, so you want to add that towards the end when the yeast is not going to be nearly as active, but when they'll still eat up the sugars and that 
those yeast will use up any oxygen that gets added to the beer when you add your fruit. I do the same thing if I'm adding sugars. So if I want to bump up the alcohol, I'll add sugar, you know, towards the end of that that active period of the fermentation. So Jack, I know you're an awesome brewer too, so I'm sure you have some some insight into this. Uh, thanks for the call. That was a lot of fun. I know there's a little bit of an inside joke with the whole Saison thing. Uh, so this has been a fun call. Thanks, guys. This has been Nick Ferguson with Expert Council answering a beer brewing question. Okay, cool. Great, great answer by Nick. Um, there's a few things I'll add to it. Um, first of all, the inside joke is Nick and I have a, a running debate over what is and what is not a Saison. We, we actually agree very much on many of the great ones, but some of them that I'm just like, that's, that's, that's not a Saison. Uh, Nick says, well, that, that makes it into the style. And, and his defense is that it's such a wide and varied style. It doesn't have a concrete style, but I know what I'm looking for in this beer. Well, let's talk about that a little bit and how fruit plays into it. Uh, these are farmhouse ales. These are farmhouse beers. And that means exactly what it sounds like. This tradition of this type of an ale is made in a farm. And a farmer's making his beer for the, for the, the year uh, or for a period of time. And he sets up right in his barn and he makes beer. And as you might imagine, the sanitation is less than optimal. And there's certain little hints of where that beer came from in there. And when you really get it coming through, It's what we call a Brett, right? That's where you have the Brett character and a Sasson, where you've got this barnyard, earthy thing. And if it's not, I just don't think it's in the style. I just think it's, well, it's like a North Belgian ale, right? It, or a South Belgian ale, I'm sorry. You know, it's long, anything made along the, the border with France, you know, and, 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 a, and, a, and a, a straw colored thing could then be called that. And I, I, I just don't see it as really hitting that that farmhouse quality that makes that beer what it is. Now, I've never had one done with fruit. I've had a lot of beers done with fruit. And I've done a lot of beers with fruit, and I've never done this either. And I think there's some definite um, wonderful potential there. And to take something tart like a cranberry... And to bring it in something already with this earthy barnyard character, you start going toward the lambic side of things, which is an, another type of ale made also in Belgium, and it's only made in about 10 miles within the city of Belgium, uh, Brussels. And it uses an open-air fermentation. You do it at a certain time of year. It's on these great big tanks sitting up on the roof, and you can try to replicate it, and you can get reasonable approximations, but it will never be what it is there. Generally, if you open ferment a beer or an ale, you get a really gnarly component, where with a Lambic, you get an awesome gnarly component. Is the only way I can describe it. It has a sour uh, uh, a character to it that's not there. Now, one of the great uh, breweries in North America, one that is not a microbrewery, but I believe is one that really kick-started the microbrew revolution in America, Sam Adams does a Lambic. They call it a Lambic, and, and to be fair to them, being true, they call it a Lambic-style ale, okay? And what they mean by that is they get all their tartness from the cranberries. They're not really brewing a Lambic. 
They're not trying to take cultures or recultivating yeast out of the bottom of a, of a of lambic or using. There are now with Y yeast, the Smack Pack yeast packs, these yeast formulations that have a lot of these indigenous uh, microfauna in them. The problem is, as Nick was talking about with the fermentation curve, the bulk of the fermentation is done by your third day. Well, a lot of these little wild beasties, so to speak, as they come in from open air, as the, as the wort ferments toward becoming an actual beer and alcohol goes up and acidity changes, they peter out and they do it in sequence. And when you just infuse them all at once, you can't replicate that. So this, this concept of using a tart fruit like a cranberry to get that type of character and then marrying it to something with, the, say, the appropriate yeast that has a little bit of that musty barnyard character to it is really awesome. So I, I like the idea it, just from in and of itself. There's one thing that Nick didn't say that I think is really important, though. If you're going to put fruit into a beer, I don't think it should go in without being pasteurized. Because, yeah, we can get all these wild characteristics and stuff like that, but when you get cranberries, you know, a bag that says ocean spray from the supermarket, you don't know what the hell's on there. And you can wash them all you want, but little bits of yeast and, 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 and just different bugaboos that can throw your beer off. Now, here's it's like a crapshoot. You might do it one time, and there might be a funkiness in there. The boy with that cranberry and that, that barnyard and all that together might just be a home run. And the next time, you might get something that tastes like Band-Aid soup. So I always believe in pasteurizing my fruit. And the way I always want to do that to avoid what's called haze or chill haze is I don't want to set the pectin. So in a pot, I'm going to put the fruit with enough water to cover it. And with cranberries, you don't need to worry about cutting it up or blending it. With apples, you might want to cut them up, macerate them in some way, and many other fruits you'd want to do this with. And I'm going to bring the temperature up to about 170 degrees. And I'm going, to, I'm going to try to hold that temperature up above 160. You'll put the fruit in, it's going to drop. I'm going to push it back up at least above 160. I do not want to boil it. I want my thermometer in there. I want to know where I'm at. And I want to hold that temperature for about, honestly, five minutes is enough. But the, by the record, you would want to do it 10. And then I'm going to let that chill. And then I'm going to add that. And the way I'm going to personally do it, I'm going to put it into a new fermentation vessel. And then I'm going to what's called rack. I'm going to come out of my primary fermenter into my secondary fermenter, and I'm going to rack it on top of the fruit. And there's going to be plenty of yeast activity and happy yeast in there, and it's going to blow up and start fermenting the sugars that's in that, 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 that fruit and leave a lot of the fruit character behind. And I'm going to get that balance that Nick was talking about. We can do that. And I'm a big fan of secondary fermentation on fruit. And when I do that, there's so much extra stuff in there that what I like to do then is go to a tertiary, a third-level fermenter. So I'll rack it off the secondary into a third-level fermenter and let it set at least another week or two at an appropriate temperature for whatever style I'm brewing. And then I'll keg it or bottle it or what have you. The really high gravity, it might be a lot longer. It might even go to a fourth fermenter. It all depends. Usually I've never gone further than a third. And unless I'm doing fruit or some kind of add-on after I brew it, I'm never even going to a third. Usually a second is way more enough. And most of my brown ales and IPAs and stuff like that, I don't even do a, a rack to a second. I just straight in and done. Okay, so so that's it. Now, that being said, Do you have to do it this way? No, and sometimes you might get better results doing it right from the beginning with the fruit. The way you would do that, you've brewed your beer, 
right? You've, you've got your wort done. You've boiled, you've done your boil, your hop immersion boil, your 60 minutes, your aroma, whatever. You let the temperature begin to come down. When your temperature gets down to about even 180, put your fruit in. It'll drop at another 10, 15 degrees like that. Let it set, and then add that straight into your fermenter and ferment with the fruit right from the beginning. <sighs> There's two schools of thought, and it really is something to experiment with because different fruits will have different results. Some fruits, more of the fruit will come through if you, if you add it during that period because it's completely infused into the ale, right? Some Some combinations, will you'll get more fruit character if you do the late edition. Like I said, I like the late edition. I really do. It's a little more work. I have to bring my, my kettle and my burner out a second time. Now, here's a great way to stack, stack functions, right? Okay, we're always thinking about stacking functions with permaculture. We can do it many other things. So what i said was take the 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 fermented you know uh wort off of the yeast layer and put it into a secondary with the fruit that means that in that fermenter you have a great big cake of yeast huge amount of yeast it is ready to go it is ready to kick ass and kick ass and take names so with this style You might brew a, a lower alcohol version, and this is a fairly high alcohol uh, style. Uh, 8% and higher is not out of the question. But you might brew with the fruit something to come in along the lines of 6%. And then rack that off to your fruit, and they're going to bump the, the alcohol level a bit because of the sugar that's in the fruit and what have you. That does its thing. On the same day... Brew a higher gravity version of that style or something that will use the same yeast. A yeast that's going to make a good Sasson is going to make a decent uh, Trappist style triple, right? Or, or a quad even. Now, it's not the same as if we go and we get the yeast that's right for that style, but it's not going to be a bad beer. It might even be what you call off style. It, it's like, uh, what's the word that they use for when you, you put things together that don't relate and it still comes out good uh, just for the sake of doing it, like I irony that, that they work together. Anyway, I can't think of what it's called, but it's like you take like a, 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 a denim chair and, a, and a, a, a leather couch and you put them into a room design uh, specifically because they don't go together and yet the whole thing works. So it's kind of that approach. So we're taking something similar but different and we're putting them together. Well, we could, and we could just brew a really high gravity straight Sasan too. It's up to, it's up to us. But by doing that, we get to reuse that yeast immediately. It doesn't get any time to get any bugaboos or bad stuff in it. And we can go with a much higher gravity ale. And that huge population of yeast is going to be able to handle it and get us to the final gravity we're looking for. In other words, ferment out as much sugar as possible and get us to a higher alcohol by volume. Now we've taken that yeast and we've made two different beers in similar styles, one a fruit and one just a higher gravity. And, hey, you know, if you wanted to, you could do worse than to take that out a few weeks later and put it on top of some cherries. I'm just saying that would be now we're getting toward what's called creek in the lambic style. Uh, but you're not going to get the sourness. But if we used a tart cherry, huh, I don't know, might be cool. Just some, it, it, this is what happens. You get into brewing, and the whole world just opens up to you, and how creative can you really be? Anyway, let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack. It's Dave uh, from Central New Jersey. Uh, quick question about cooking venison. Um, the chopped meat I have and the steaks I have are, are kind of really bloody. <laughs> so I was wondering, how do you, how do you prepare that and uh, get rid of all the blood? Do you like do you soak it and, or season it in a certain way? Uh, any ideas? Would be great. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so what we have is meat that really wasn't handled properly, if that's the problem. And we're not going to beat up on that. We're going to say, okay, how do we fix this now that we're here? Now, what I'm hoping is that these cuts are relatively thick. The thinner they are, um, the more of an issue you're going to have with trying to fix this and end up with a good quality product. Assuming these things are you know, three-quarters of an inch thick, this is not that big a deal. Uh, it could be better. It's suboptimum, but we can fix it. And we don't want to soak it. What we have is we have way too much moisture in this meat. Uh, some of it's water, some of it's blood. And it's probably more water than you think it is. And this is usually from the, the animal not being bled out quickly enough. So when I kill a deer or a hog or whatever, I want to field dress it immediately. And if I can get it up on a gambrel and, and get either it skinned right away So then you're going to end up cutting the head off at the end of that. Or if, if nothing else, to, to cut open the, the main uh, veins and arteries around the neck and let it gravity do its thing, I'm going to do whatever I can do to get as much blood out of the meat as possible, as soon as possible is what I'm going to do. It's just going to result in a better finished product. So, I mean, this is like when we, when we butcher chickens, instead of just putting them on a chopping block and chopping their head off, we want to hang them upside down and bleed them out. Uh, it's not just because it's the, the best way we can, we can process them humanely. It's because by bleeding out the meat, we, we get blood-free meat. And we don't get meat with a lot of moisture in it. Moisture is the issue here. So the problem, the, there's two problems here. One, all of that extra moisture and, 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 and a lot of the things that are in it, uh, which will include some blood and, and some other things, will contribute to what people call the gamey flavor of, of meat, especially something in the lines of a, a, a deer, okay? So that's minerally, irony, and gamey are all things that will be in there that will be to the effect that you don't want. I don't, I don't like the term gamey because I like game meats, right? So I, I don't consider it gamey. I consider it, if I do this with a cow, you'll end up with the same flavor. Uh, I think gamey is a disservice to game meats, But that's the word people use, so I'll use it here. So since that didn't happen, and likely this meat probably sat in water. It was probably put, usually when it's really bad, it was put into a cooler uh, with a bunch of ice, and then the meat sinks below the ice into the water, and it's soaked in ice water. And, and the meat, because it has been bled out some, like sucks the water up. So it's probably been soaked in water, and that's not good either. Um, so now we need to, to undo the damage. Some people would say soak it in salt water. That will help pull out some stuff, but it will also continue to put moisture into the meat. The best thing you can do is get the meat uncovered a couple days, two days before you're going to cook it. And I do this with store-bought meat all the time. I have a big flank steak sitting this way right now in my refrigerator doing this exact thing. Lay down two or three, four layers deep of paper towel, Set the meat on top of that, leave it uncovered, and put it in your refrigerator. Check it in a couple hours. If the towel's like soaking wet with blood and, and, and moisture that's come out of the meat, take the meat off the paper towels, throw it away, put fresh paper toweling down, and, set, and keep doing that until you get just a little bit of moisture absorbed by your paper towel. 
And when there's almost no moisture absorbed by your paper towel, you can even take the paper towel away and set it just on a cutting board or on a plate and set it in there with nothing so you're not holding the moisture against it. And then turn it once every four or five hours. This is more than you would normally need to do, but it's because the meat is not, it's not dry enough. This is a dry aging and salvage operation at the same time. We could do this process for up to a week, and the meat's not going to go bad. Kept in a refrigerator at refrigeration temperatures. If you, here's the thing. If you take that piece of meat, put it in a Ziploc bag, even, even if it's pretty, pretty well drained, and keep it moist like that, and put that in a refrigerator for a week, and you open it at the end of the week, it's probably ruined, and if nothing else, when you smell it, it stinks. This is not good. Meat is not supposed to be have all this moisture held into it like this while it's being it's being kept in cold storage. It needs to be able to breathe. It needs to dry out, and the muscle fibers begin to break down, and the meat becomes more tender. This is why in some of your finer steakhouses, steaks might be dry aged for six weeks to eight weeks or more. There's a and there's some there's a lactic acid fermentation process that also happens, but it, just the relaxing of the muscles in general. This is a good process for any meat, especially red meats. And when a meat has sat into this process long enough to where the effect is going to give you a better cooked product, if you push the meat, it'll make like a dent and it kind of stays there. And when the meat's still, you know, assuming it's dried out some, because when they're wet and mushy, this will happen anyway. But usually when you have the meat dried out the proper level and it hasn't aged long enough, when you push, it's like pushing on rubber. Like you push in and it pops right back out. When you push in, it kind of stays like a dimple and slowly reforms or stays dimpled. It's going to cook much nicer for you. So that's what I would do with these cuts. Paper towel in the refrigerator. Check every couple hours. If you have to go to work or something, put a really thick layer down for the first day. You know, Flip them over when you replace the paper towel and, and, and get that meat dried out. And let it age in a, you know, a refrigerator is not the perfect dry age environment because refrigerators are kind of humid, but they're nowhere near as humid as wrapped up in butcher paper or plastic bags or what have you. I do this with steaks. I go to the market, I buy steak. I come home, and if unless it's being frozen, that if I'm going to cook that steak in two days, that steak is coming out of the out of the package immediately. It's sitting on that little diaper-looking absorption thing with a piece of cellophane over the top of it. That is just the worst way to keep meat if you want quality, because whatever that pad absorbs, it, 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 it's just released into the air and back into the steak. Right? They do that so they can put it in a little case and you can look at it, and it won't get infected with stuff. But it's not good for meat. Take it out. If you want to do an experiment, take a, 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 a low-cost piece of meat, cut it in half, put half of it on a plate in the refrigerator, drain it with a paper towel if it needs that first, but once that's done, just set it on a plate, put the other one in a plastic bag. See which one stinks first. See which one you you, you open up and smell and go, I wouldn't eat that, and, and leave it there. See how long it takes to where you go, not only would I wouldn't eat that, I wouldn't feed that to my dog if I boiled it. And, and the dry-aged piece will probably be like, yeah, I'd eat that. It might turn a little bit black in color, you know, but it, will, it won't stink. Your nose has that olfactory capability for a reason, to tell you when things aren't good anymore. Uh, now, how do we avoid this? The biggest way we can avoid this with game is, again, immediately bleed the animal out as best we can. Number two, when we skin the animal and we quarter it right into big pieces, if you can, 
You know, if you have like a big walking cooler or something out of deer camp or whatever, hang the quarters up with nothing covering them because the cooler's closed and nothing's going to get in there then and let them, let them age for a while like that. If, if not, one of the best investments you can make if you're a hunter, and I believe if you're a prepper and a cook and a, a everything, is find an old refrigerator on Craigslist, stick it out in your garage and only plug it in when you're using it. Quarter a deer, two or three quarter deer will fit in a standard refrigerator. You might have to pull some racks out and stuff or move them around. Quarter it and stick it in there and let it sit for three or four days before you, you piece it out. And then when you piece it out, the stuff you're going to freeze, don't cut it into serving size portions. Leave full muscle groups intact. Do a really good job. This is where you pull your vacuum sealer out, right? Cryovac this stuff up. Label it, date it, and freeze it. And so I have a big piece that could make four or five steaks now, or four or five chops, a whole piece of loin. Let's say I have a, a one-foot-long piece of, of back loin. I'll leave it like that. When I defrost that, I'm going to set on paper towels, I'm going to put it in the refrigerator, I'm going to leave it there for a while till it drains out any of the residual blood that's in it. I'm going to flip it over, and that, since it's been cared for right, I probably don't need new paper towels. I've got it to one side of the plate, I'm going to flip it over on its back to the other side of the plate. I'm going to leave all the silver sheen, all the stuff I need to trim on it until I'm ready to cook it. And then, once, once that's done, I might take the paper towel away, put down one layer, stick it back in, and let it sit in the refrigerator another day. It's nice and relaxed. It's happy now. I'm going to take it out of the refrigerator at least two hours before I'm going to cook it. I'm going to let it come up to room temperature. This is now where I'm going to cut it into its portions. I'm going to trim off any silver sheen or tendon or anything else like that, and I'm going to season it. I'm going to season it about 30 minutes before I cook it. I'm going to cook it to a medium. It's still going to be red in the middle. And it's not going to be runny and bloody because I've taken care of it the right way. And after I'm done cooking it, I'm going to rest it. I'm going to let it rest. But your short answer, paper towels, drain it, get the blood out of it before you cook it. Plan on a couple days in advance. Get it out of the and get it out of the wrapper, out of the packaging. Wet meat stored in, a, in an airtight or even restricted environment goes to nasty fast. Anyway, with that, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Jeremy in Birmingham, Alabama. I wanted to get your advice on preparing clay soil in a small suburban backyard for a permaculture-style garden. A little background detail. I live on 0.14 acres of land in uh, a small suburb south of Birmingham. We uh, do have an HOA. I'll never do that again. Um, and uh, when they developed the neighborhood, they came through, pushed all the dirt off, and Um, laid Bermuda sod directly on the clay. What I've done now is come through and put about two inches, three inches of good composted soil. On top of that, planted some cayuse oats, some daikon radish, and some Australian, uh, uh, some winter pea, and uh, put hay on, watered it, and it sprouted. So I wanted to get your opinion on what you would do next. Have I made the right steps, um, or taken the right steps, and um, any other advice that you could lend? To, um, to preparing the soil and, and what you've planned. I'm planting a bunch of annuals because I don't know how long I will be in this house anymore. Um, I don't want to plant a bunch of perennials that I'll have to come to later and chop down in order to sell the house. Anyway, thanks for all you do. Uh, look forward to your comments. Well, what you've done is great. And if you were going to turn this into a perennial production system, I'd say you have two methods. You can take the slow method or the fast method. 
uh, preparing this soil, which would be, if you want to go faster, bring in more compost, go around your neighbors, get as many leaves as you can, run them over with a lawnmower, get some straw, make a, a, a multi-layered lasagna mulch and just keep building up on it. Uh, possibly even laying down a, a layer of, of two-layer deep cardboard layer and then another layer of compost on that and start your sheet mulching from there and uh, take it to wherever you want. Now, if you're just going to do annual gardens, what you've done is probably pretty good. Um, you've definitely encouraged a lot of microbial activity. Um, some things I might suggest you do additionally with what you already have done is go get yourself some horticultural molasses. And in this case, I would go ahead with the liquid And give it a good ground soaking two or three times through the winter, about three or four weeks apart. And you're going to have very low response to that initially. You're going to dump some nitrogen in there. There's actually a lot of nitrogen uh, in, uh, in fermented molasses, which is what most of the, the horticultural molasses is. like. It's like beet, uh, beet juice molasses, basically, sugar beet molasses. And um, it, so you'll get some nitrogen yield, but there's only you're going to put sugar in there. And that's only going to do so much in the winter when the biological activity is actually relatively low because it's cold and everything slowed down. But you're going to build up these different pockets of sugars and different microbial relationships with sugars. And then right before you plant, go ahead and hit it one more time. So maybe three or four soakings with one soaking being done like a week before you're going to plant. That's going to help wake up the soil life, the soil activity. Um, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt to put down 10 pounds, 15 pounds of worm castings. Uh, you can buy a bag of those on Amazon. They'll ship them to your house. Uh, these are things you can do to further improve the soil tilth. Um, I would go just straight to a sheet mulch, but since you've done kyosote and daikon and things like that, you've got this stuff growing now. You don't want to cover it up. And what I would do personally is I would just run the dadgone stuff over with a lawnmower about a week or two before you want to plant, and I would hit it with that, that molasses and maybe some worm castings and any other soil amendments you want to use. And if the area is not so large that this is impractical, tarp it for a couple weeks. Kill everything. Deprive it of light. You know, go to Walmart or Tractor Supply or whatever and get a pretty decent... Tarps are great to have anyway. Get a couple big tarps, stretch it over the area, put it to bed well, and, and let, it, let that stuff start to break down and rot and deprive any of your weed activity of light uh, and knock it back. And it, honestly, if I was doing it for annual production now, I would then come back in. And at the same time I was putting my annuals in, I would seed it with white clover, New Zealand or Dutch clover, and I would create a, a basically a living mulch of clover. And each successive planting that I planted, instead of tilling it all up again, I'd leave it alone. Anything I ever added to, I'd just be adding on top of it. And I'd be reseeding some clover if I needed to every spring. And when you want to plant something, you take your trowel, you cut a hole in your clover. You cut a little patch of clover out, you dig a hole, you put your plant in there, you turn your clover upside down, your little clover sod clump, put it right back around the plant. By the time that clover encroaches back to that plant, that plant's up over the clover, everybody's happy. Clover's doing some nitrogen fixation, it's preventing evaporation, it's preventing weeds from getting back in there. It's a little bit of a modified version of the Fukuoka method. Uh, if you want to read Sowing Seeds in the Desert uh, by Masanobu Fukuoka, it would be a great thing for you to, uh, to read to get an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, but sheet mulching is always, a, always an alternative. But it sounds like you're well on your way. The clay thing, people worry so much about clay. And, if you know, where you're at, you're probably dealing with that red clay. It seems like such a horrible thing. 
But as soon as plants start putting their roots down in there, that clay becomes an advantage. First of all, the plant roots themselves start to go down, and then the plant dies, and the root die back, and another plant goes down, and you got daikon. Uh, daikon, man, that stuff will go down two feet in there, and, and it'll die. And if it doesn't die on its own, when you mow it, it'll die. Another great thing you can do with daikon, plant it wherever you want to use it, and you'll see the tuber going way down in the ground. You'll usually see a couple inches of that tuber coming up above the ground. Whenever you want to kill it, like whatever point you decide, like I want it to start rotting in the ground now, take a scythe. And just scythe it. Instead of scything the top off it, scythe it almost level with the ground. Scythe the piece of the radish that's exposed above the ground. It'll die like that. It'll smell a little bit like natural gas for a couple weeks. Not real, real strong, but you'll smell it. You'll be like, what's that? It smells like the propane tank's leaking lightly or something. And it's it's that daikon decomposing in the ground, but it is worm candy. So I think you've done well with it. And again, what I would do is mow it or scythe it down uh, in the spring and maybe tarp it and then plant right into what's there. Basically, let it become its own mulch. If you're going to mow it, I would, I would prefer to scythe it, and I would let it lay for a couple days before you tarped it so that the... The, the part you scythe has some time to dry out a bit, so you're not holding the moisture into like this green fermentation thing going on there. So let it dry out. And once it's dry, tarp it and uh, kill off the weeds before you plant your annuals. Um, if For those that would be listening to the same thing and you wanted to do a perennial-based system, long-term food forest type thing, just sheet mulch the hell out of it. Just sheep. It's always, it always works. It always works. It always works. I do it here with limestone rock four inches below the, the top of the, the topsoil. I do it in clay. I do it where the, where the soil's already good. I do it anywhere. Sheep mulch, sheep mulch, sheep mulch. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Hey, I wanted to ask about the gold line paint cans you talked about a long time ago. Um, I haven't heard about it lately. Do you still use them? Do you not use them? Do you recommend them? Was it a flash in the pan or something that you're still using? But you were using gold, gold line paint cans to be smaller uh, containers to store food. So that's it. Thanks. Bye. I wouldn't say it was a, a flash in the pan. I definitely have a method I prefer now, and part of it's because I, I think it's a better method, and part of it's because some of my school of thought has changed a lot. Uh, years and years ago, when I first started playing around with the, the gold line paint cans, and that gold lining is an FDA-approved lining, so that means you can store food in it, and even though the company that sells them, which is called the Carry Company, C-A-L-Y, Carry Company, uh, it says that it's FDA approved. They also still recommend you use bags or something like that inside them. Well, it just, they weren't that much more. So, so it really was storing in paint cans and the gold lining was, well, it doesn't cost that much more and it's food grade. So use it, stupid, uh, was kind of how I felt about it. So, um, with, at that time, also, we had a really secure bug out location in rural Arkansas. We lived in a very, heavily populated suburb and it was very much the possibility that we might need to leave was my my you know my emergency planning that if we had a very uh catastrophic event that where I was was nowhere near as safe as where I could go and I'd want to take as much with me as possible so the cans were durable lightweight and uh and because of that they made more sense than something like a jar Along the years, I came across a company that makes a product called a vacuum canner, and it is nothing but a modified uh, pressure cooker. And once it's modified, you're not pressure cooking with it anymore, by the way. 
uh, with some different valves and fittings and things like that, and, and a pump like you would use like uh, for working on air conditioners, really heavy, uh, very, very powerful vacuum pump. And you put uh, standard ball jars into this with the little things, and you put the, the collars on and then back them off a half a turn. And you, you, you put the lid on it, and you suck out the air down to, like, outer space level uh, negative pressure. Uh, you shut the pump off. You open a valve, and the jars immediately seal. And, you know, we can put in 20, 30, 40 different varieties of things and, and, and do four or five cycles and have all of it done and labeled and put away so fast and so easy without jacking around with a paint can. And since I'm now much less of a fan of the the bug-out philosophy, especially the long-term bug-out philosophy, uh, I'm not so much concerned about how transportable are these items. And as I've developed our, our preparedness planning over the years, I've also realized that that's only so important. Once you have about as much as you can carry, it don't matter if the rest can be carried or not because you ain't taking it with you. So I've gone far more to the ball jars, and I see them as just a wonderful universal container because I can use the same jar uh, just to throw some solution vinegar and, and beet solution in and make pickled eggs as I can to can pumpkin out of the garden as I can to dry can something like beans. So that one product does so many things. Yeah, it'll break, but only if you drop it on something hard, right? And cleaning them, you take them and you put them upside down in the dishwasher and you run them through the dishwasher and you're done. Uh, the, replacing the little lid part is not that big a deal. And uh, the collars pretty much last forever because they only serve the purpose of holding the, the, the seal disc in place for long enough for it to be sealed. I, I've probably thrown three collars out in my adult life that either got bent or dinged up or something like that. So I just now prefer the vacuum canner. Uh, it's not cheap. Uh, you can build one of your own for about $120, $150, I guess, if you bought everything new. Uh, or maybe even a little less. Jake, uh, also known as Prepper Survivor on the forum, built one. Uh, it worked really good. I'd say it worked every bit as good as mine. He bartered it here on the barter blanket to somebody that got it. And, uh, you know, I have one from Vacu Canner uh, Company. And I'll put a link today in the show notes of about a 10, 12 minute video review I did of us actually using it and what I like about it. And it's just, to me, a better solution uh, than a paint can with an O2 absorber in it. Um, because of the, the level of vacuum this thing pulls. Now, I want to say this with vacuum sealing. Not only is ammo something I wouldn't bother vacuum sealing, there's certain things I wouldn't vacuum seal. If it's moist, don't vacuum seal it. You, you're going to create an anaerobic fermentation environment, and it's going to go awful nasty, awful fast, and possibly make you sick. So I think I've seen people do it with stuff like raisins. Raisins, plums, dried fruits in general, not freeze-dried, not dehydrated, but dried fruits that have a moistness in the center, they are, that is how you store them. That's why they, they started doing this with fruits and, and uh, let's say sun-dried tomatoes and stuff like that. Don't, don't do that with these things because what happens is you do the vacuum seal and some of that moisture in the center actually gets pulled out and coats the outside, whether you can see it or not. And then little anaerobic bugaboos get in there in an oxygen-deprived environment and, and do some really nasty, gnarly things. Vacuum sealing, unless you're freezing it, is for dry goods and nothing else. Uh, but how effective is it? I have jars with chopped up dried jalapenos in them that are from Arkansas. 
We moved in this house two years ago, and that harvest was six months before that. So they're two and a half years old. I can pop a lid off them today, rehydrate them, use them in my cooking and stuff, and they, they taste the same as they did the day we put them in there. Uh, and I'll bet you in 25 years they will. The advantage of the paint can is it, it gets rid of light. That That is one advantage the paint can has is it gets rid of light, and, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the jar is clear and it lets light in. That said, we store most of our jarred goods up in a couple of closets that we have, which are 99% of the time pitch black dark anyway. So it's, it's six and one half dozen of the other, which you want to use. Anyway, I have a link to the, the video review on the blog of that product, the Bacu Canner. Uh, and I will also have a link to the carry company where you can get those cans. Those cans are still useful. Uh, I just don't see them as useful as a ball jar with a vacuum canner, but... In essence, it does cost less because you buy the you have to buy the jars or the cans. When you drive the, drive, buy the cans, all you need is some O tubes, orbers, and a rubber mallet, and you're in business. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Jason from Michigan. Question: How do I begin the process for being able to deduct from my yearly taxes some of the farm-related, operational-related uh, investments that I make uh, for our farm? Background is, is that my family and I, we moved from a uh, from the city to a beautiful 10-acre farmstead about a year ago. This year, we started our farm business, uh, getting our feet wet first with uh, pastured poultry, did some seasonal vegetables, and we look to expand into pork and some other diversified business segments in the next year. Um, I'm 41 years old, and up until this point, I've only, all my life, have filed as an individual. What do I need to do differently now in order to uh, begin filing uh, as a business, and thus from that point start uh, deducting, uh, writing off any business-related expenses. I'm, I'm looking to chainsaws, heavy-duty equipment, tractors, nursery stock of that sort. Um, any insight you could offer would be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, there's a lot going on there, and I can only give you so much here. My first piece of advice is no matter what I tell you, get a good CPA. Do not do your own taxes in this world uh, of deductions where you start to get creative and things like that. But as far as the deductions themselves, there is there's very little that you can't deduct as a as a as an individual with a self-employed component to your income as compared to being a business that pays yourself or passes through income as self-employed. And, and what I mean by that is like so one thing is. If you are self-employed and paying for your own health insurance, you have to spend a lot of money before it becomes deductible. If you form a company and pay for your own health insurance through your company, it becomes a deductible expense. That's one of the few things that it's really necessary to have a corporate entity or at least a DBA set up and do business in the company name. So the company is actually paying for the health insurance policy. If you're paying for it, then it's not deductible, again, unless with self-employed, a fairly high threshold before it becomes deductible. Uh, and at a certain point, all medical expenses for the self-employed become a, a deduction. So uh, you don't have to create a corporate entity to file this year and take the deductions that you're entitled to. When you go see your, your accountant, you have to show that you've made an attempt for income, what revenue came in. It doesn't have to be profitable, but if you don't have any revenue, then you don't have nothing. You don't have a business unless you've at least made a legitimate attempt to generate a profit. You don't have to be profitable, but honestly, to keep from triggering stuff, you need to have 
some level of commerce that's occurred, some level of cash flow. You, know, you could have sold a thousand bucks worth of stuff and spent ten thousand dollars, and that's fine. And you might run into limits on deductions in certain categories, but that's okay. You have zero cash flow. You are not a business in the eyes of the government. Uh, you are you're engaged in a hobby. Okay, so that's that's another thing. And again, talk to your CPA because there's certain small level thresholds where you can show some attempt, and you might be able to do a little bit of deducting. But don't think you have to be an LLC or an Inc or an S corp or anything like that to be able to deduct this. You can just do what's called a Schedule C on your taxes where you itemize your expenses for your self-employed, whether 100% self-employed or the self-employed component of your income. So that's it. Now, this is why I say get a CPA. You're already talking about deducting things you can't deduct. You're not deducting a tractor. You can depreciate a tractor, but you're not deducting it. It may qualify or may not qualify depending on all the circumstances for what's known as a Uh, an accelerated depreciation. But generally speaking, something like a tractor uh, will depreciate over five or ten years. You have to ask your CPA. I don't know. I've never depreciated a tractor before. But the way it'll work, you either have an accelerated model or a uniform model of depreciation. And let's say let's say it's a five-year depreciation on a $5,000 item. You can depreciate $1,000 a year for five years. And there's a way to, to front-end the depreciation and take more of the depreciation in the first year, but that's an asset in your business. That's not an expense. When you get into farming, there's all kinds of stuff that you would think are an expense that they're not. So if you plant trees, it's not an expense. It's an improvement that you can depreciate over like 30 years or something like that. And there is some angles and avenues in some ways, and this is what you start, like the more we've learned about it, the more we've realized with agriculture You understand why somebody like Mark Shepard says to borrow money. If I borrow money, I can depreciate the expense of paying the money back. And I can get, I can get ahead a lot faster with the government than I can if I spend the money out of my pocket. You need, you need a CPA. Now, for farm income, what you want is what's called a Schedule F. And it's just basically like a Schedule C, but for agricultural activities. The big thing is record-keeping. Keep records of everything. When you spend it, how much you spend it for, and why you spend it. You don't think it's deductible? I don't care. Keep the records. Go over it with your CPA. That's why you pay them. And they'll say, yes, that's deductible. No, that's not deductible. Here's how to make it deductible. Or a portion of this is deductible. And this is funny because it, it co co uh, corresponds with a comment I made on the blog today about a totally different way of looking at this that I'm going to read to you now. And when I heard this call, I thought, wow, what, what synergy that the audience always seems to be in. So we had John Pugliano yesterday, and Riley P. said on the blog, I agree. Uh, I can't wait to listen to this, hoping there's info about tax breaks included. And this was my response. I'm just going to read what I wrote because I think it's very important people understand the advantages and the not-so-great advantages of being in business for yourself when it comes to tax. Uh, you know, tax breaks for small businesses is a buzzword uh, used to sell books and seminars. There really aren't many tax breaks as a business owner. In some sectors, there may be subsidies and grants for some things. Many of them you won't want to do anyway, though. What owning a business does is allow you to change one simple, simple formula for many, not all things, but yes, many. Business owners earn, spend, and pay taxes. Employees earn, pay taxes, and then spend. 
There are some things that are nice about that and some things that don't really matter. If you looked at my tax return, you'd see some nice ones, like home office deduction. Two rooms in my home are dedicated to business use. Any auditor would have no way to say they were not. They are set up for recording and video, administration, customer service, etc. Now, I would have bought a house this size if I owned a business or not. These rooms would likely still be quote-unquote offices just for personal versus business use, and I would not have a deduction. That is cl a clear win for me. This deduction isn't that big, but it puts about four to five hundred dollars a year back in my pocket in taxes I don't pay. It is a win. Understand before I go on, it doesn't give me a four to five hundred dollar deduction. It gives me enough deduction that it puts about four to five hundred dollars in tax money back in my pocket. So you have to get way ahead on the deduction to get the dollars, right? So it's you know twenty to thirty percent in the end. Okay. But if you examined my return, you'd find a lot of big deductions, but most are not wins or breaks. They are simply the cost of doing business. In hosting alone, I pay about $8,500 a year, and that is all a deduction from my income, but it isn't an actual deduction. The expense does nothing outside of supporting my business. If I travel I and take a course, I can deduct it and do, but most professionals can do this. Uh, for most pure core development things as well. Yes, I get more freedom. I can, for instance, decide that I want to go visit the guy in Allentown with 400 types of figs in his backyard. I can take my wife, who is my assistant, and cover 100% of our cost as deductions. We can then visit a local forest and say we're doing research into indigenous plants. The cost is real, but I can deduct this, and most people can't. It is a win, but it isn't a break. It is simply part of the earn, spend, pay tax dynamic. When my wife and I go out to eat, we can discuss business and deduct about 50%, or actually deduct 50% of the cost of the meal. Likely, we'd have gone out anyway, so this is a win. It isn't a break, though. The cost is real, and the savings is not what you'd think. Say I take out a couple that we work with, say Brian and Kelly from ITS Tactical, and I pick up the check. Say we go to a really nice place, and, the t and with the, the cost of the tip and all together is a $300 tab. I can deduct $150 of that, but it isn't $150 in my pocket. It is by the time you factor in so many things like bringing down the tax bracket, the effective tax rate, etc., maybe $40 to $50 bucks that the IRS doesn't get. It's a win, but it's not a break. Does that make sense? There's also another factor. Say I make $100,000 in profit versus $100,000 as employment. As an employee, I would pay 7.65% in SSI and Medicare, which is $7,650. Makes sense. So you make $100,000 working for ABC Corporation. You're out of pocket tax expense on SSI and Medicare combined. $7,650. As a business owner or self-employed, I pay 13.85% or $13,850 in taxes. I pay the same 6.2% you do. I also have to match that 6.2%. As my own employer, we both pay 1.45 in Medicare, so I pay 6.2 plus 6.2 plus 1.45. I do get to turn around and deduct the match. 
or the 6250 from my income. In the end, I'm paying about $12,400 by the time it's really all over with. In the end, I'm $4,750 behind the $100,000 employee out of the gate just from Social Security. So until I deduct enough money, I would likely spend anyway. There is no win. There is no break. Now, once you get above $118,500 in annual income, you stop paying SSI. So at that level, you begin to have some income freedom. Trust me, while being a small business owner is better, setting one up just for tax breaks doesn't work. The tax advantages are something you learn and do simply so you can actually keep the money you earn for yourself. Frankly, I personally think the self-employed should pay less taxes because they don't just earn their money. They are responsible for the opportunity to earn their money every day. There's no coasting. You do or you don't. Sadly, almost no one in government at any level actually understands this. So, you know, a little bit of my own political commentary there at the end, but that's the reality of home-based or self, uh, self-directed self earning, uh, self-employment income, running your own business. You need a good tax attorney. And a lot of the things I threw at you there are not things that I knew because I was in business. They were things I learned from being in business over the years. And there's probably dozens of little ways that you can take deductions. And even though, like I said, you're not going to deduct a tractor, you're going to deduct the depreciation, we'll do that. That's a recurring deduction that will happen for the next five years or ten years, depending on the equipment and the type of business. Now, is your farm a business? If all you did was run it for personal consumption, it probably isn't. But talk to an, a, a CPA, because I don't know. Because I haven't tried to take that approach. I I have enough deduction in my my business as it stands that I, I, I think that I'm good and I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure out how do I depreciate a peach tree uh, because of the way I run things and because my primary business is this podcast. Um, but for a person that's, that's doing it for a, a genuine intent to earn a profit, it makes a lot of sense to me. And you may find that even without the revenue component, you can still begin the depreciation process because you're building it for the purpose of revenue. But I don't know that. CPA, and if you're going into the farm world, find a CPA that works with farmers. And I would say if you're, if you're going into the, uh, the technology world, if you can find a CPA that specifically works with technology firms, that would be even better. But a definite conversation with the CPA on what is and what is not deductible. When it comes to do you form a corporate structure, talk to a CPA and a tax attorney. Talk to both and get their opinions. If you think something the tax attorney says is not really, like if it doesn't make sense to you or maybe this is a bad idea, talk to two or three or four tax attorneys. And then take all of their uh, advice and choose the advice that works best for you in your situation after discussing it with your CPA. I can't tell you what to do here. You know, I really can't because your situation is unique and different. Than, you don't just have federal taxes. You have the impact of state and local taxes, sales taxes, all kinds of things that you need to discuss with a qualified CPA for your area. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Jesse from Vermont here. Uh, I've got some open uh, fields filling in with weeds and whatnot, kind of getting overgrown. Uh, I wanted to make that to the best pasture possible and um, I was wondering what methods you'd recommend um, I'm guessing you're going to ask if you know what I'm planting the pasture I honestly don't know at this point uh, so if you can just keep it broad thanks you're not going to like my answer you're really not um, 
I, I'm going to tell you pretty much all you can do with it is mow it or brush hog it until you put some daggone animals on it. You don't make pasture and put animals on, on to, to land. You use animals to create and sculpt and form pasture. So I would tell you the way that you turn this into pasture is you put animals on it and begin pulsing them through the land, and you're going to rotate their grazing periods based on what's available to them, uh, and you're going to seed behind them with the things that you want to encourage, and over time you're going to create a lush pasture. So you're, you're not going to make a, a weedy field into high-quality pasture before you put the animals on it. I, I, I know that doesn't sound right, but it is. And, and that's really all I have on that one. Um, and I, I, what I'll do is I'll forward this one to Darby Simpson and see if he can give you some further advice. But I bet you it's going to be dadgone similar to what I just said. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up for the day. Just real quick, Jack. This is a car drive off of Zello in the forum. Uh, I'm just passing signs that the public schools are actually advertising to get students to enroll. Hey, you have a good one. You, you nailed it on the dime. Take care. Bye. I, I, I try to be careful with stuff like this so that I'm not like saying, see, I was right with this like one-off uh, statement of like, so they're advertising for enrollment because schools might advertise the enrollment period or whatever for a variety of reasons. But it is interesting because I did in fact say that schools would begin to see enrollment decline to the point where they would begin to try to win back students into the school districts. And that may very well be what you're seeing these signs from the guy that called in about this. Um, I believe this is going, I, I've been talking about this for about a year now that the mo and I did a whole episode this week on, on, on the, the evolution of education and how school is not education. School is a place where you can get an education, but education is not school. Education is education. School is a building with people that teach. Hopefully, anyway. And schools are inherently limited. Someone runs a school. Someone makes decisions about a school. Some group decides what will be taught, how it will be taught, how long classes will be. It creates this structure and curriculum that is very static. And education should be, by its very nature, dynamic. And I believe that, in essence, this is the, the fact of the matter. For about oh, I don't know, several hundred years, the concept of a building that everybody goes to and everybody's sitting in a straight line and using their pen and their paper and all the other things that go along with school and nap time for kindergartners and, and all of this stuff was the best we could do with the technology available. It really wasn't a better way to do things. To get everybody a base level education. That, there, that, that, that was the best we could do. And because that was the best we could do, every prosperous nation extorted money from its citizens to provide that service and said, not only will we take your money and provide the service, you will use it. And you will send your kids to school and they will learn the way we tell them to and they will make certain allowances for certain people that just have to be crazy nut job, whack jobs to do things, but we will still tell them how to do what they're going to do to a large degree. And that was sold to people because it really was, if you wanted the most number of people to be able to at least read, write, and do math to happen, the best we could do. And since about 1997, 98, when people first started to get these little discs in the mail 
and they put them in their computers, which were a kind of a new thing that every home started to have a computer in it. And after you followed some prompts, you heard, you've got mail. Since that day, the writing has been on the wall for that best method to go away and not be the best method anymore. And no one wants to accept it because after, and really the modern education system, we go back to about 1880 with the introduction of the Prussian model of education to America and the institution of property taxes to pay for it really came on heavily in the, 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 the second half of the last century where it really got ramped up. And since the 1950s up until now, those revenues for government have gone up and up and up. As real estate values rose, so did those revenues and the portions they could take, and they've extorted more and more money. And that money has been used to do some really good things and some really crappy things. But one thing it's done is it's built an entire institution, a massive industry, trillions of dollars have gone into this industry. And it provides jobs and benefits and health care for millions of employees, not just teachers and principals and administrators, but janitors, contractors. I myself earned income at one time from the public education sector because I was a young man doing telecommunications work, installing data cabling, and under the Clinton administration, we're going to put computers in every classroom. And my company that I worked for at the time had a contract with Plano, Plano School District, and I put hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of computer drops into Plano School District until I ended up with a contract out at Lockheed Martin. So I, I, I understand. And that was, so it's not just the teachers that have a vested interest in this multi-billion dollar industry remaining the way that it is. There is everybody that cuts the grass for schools, because most schools today, they don't have a groundskeeper, Willie, like on The Simpsons. They have a company that cuts their grass. People that make lockers and locks and, and, and provide food and lunches and the lunch lady and the transportation to get it there. And there's a whole transportation industry with, with noble people that drive buses to get kids from their house to school. None of these people are bad people, but the system's archaic. The system's done. It's extracted from society, but yet up until recently, not only has it returned more to society. I want to run defending education as it's been done. Okay, I want you to understand that. Not only has it returned more, it was the only way to get that return. In 1985, if you wanted the majority of your people to be educated, it was really the only effective way to get it done. You had to have this giant apparatus, and that's why people tolerated it for so long. And along the way, it got out of hand. All of a sudden, teachers are heroes. See, I remember back in the 80s when they would feature a certain teacher and say, this teacher's a hero. Look what she did. She went to this low-income school, and she could have taught at this private school, but she went there, and she got these kids, and these kids were getting Fs, and now they're scoring higher on their SATs than, than their contemporaries across town in the upscale neighborhood. And, and this is a teacher that's a hero, or they say this teacher uh, has worked, you know, is a shop teacher that's worked with a disadvantage and has got these kids up to a level of skill that they're getting careers out of making cabinetry. Like, there were these teachers that really were heroic, and they had gone so far beyond what we've expected 
expected of them, and that got morphed into, we need more money for education. All of a sudden, all teachers are heroes. And you say, teachers are not heroes just because they're teachers. And they go, boo, hiss, you're a horrible, horrible person. How could you say such a thing? Well, because it's true. In our hearts, we know this is true. We know that everybody that teaches the frickin' fourth grade does not qualify as a hero. That is an asinine on its face retarded statement. Because you teach fourth graders, you're a hero? Because you teach kindergartners how to use a crayon, you're a hero? Get the hell out of here. This is ridiculous. It doesn't mean it's not noble. It doesn't mean it's not useful. It doesn't mean it's not hard work in some ways. It's not lollygagging at the, at the park, right? It's a complicated thing to be a teacher in this world. It really is. It's not an easy job the way some people think it is. It's not as hard as we're told it is either. See, that teachers, you need to understand this. This is why people are pissed, and this is why people are here, tired of it, and this is why people have gone to the extreme and saying you don't really do a real job because they're so sick of hearing that it's like as hard as mining coal or something in the 1850s. We're sick of it. You know, we don't want to hear that crap because we know it's BS. The average person that works all year long that wants to, doesn't want to hear you bitch in July while you're on vacation somewhere for three months about how hard it is and then turn around and go, well, sometimes we have to go in and, and clean our classrooms up and, and, and sometimes we have to take extra classes and I don't care. Every profession has that. So this dynamic has been created. But th that's where it's all stemmed from. It's stemmed from it's gone to runaway madness, where we now spend more money for a sixth grader to go to school, in some cases, than a child or a, a young adult can purchase a private education for in, in, in the collegiate level. There are, there are school districts where a sixth grade student is accounting for $18,000, $20,000 in, in money a year to put that kid to school for nine months out of the year. Now, let's face it, it's only five days a week. Come on. It's gotten insane. And at the same time it's gotten insane, an alternative has appeared. And the alternative isn't an alternative. It's a method of delivery of thousands of alternatives. The Internet. And it is the better solution. It is the better solution. I can sit here and learn permaculture from Jeff Lawton. You can sit where you are and learn preparedness and home self-sufficiency skills and business skills from me. You can drive down the road and get the information I provide at no cost. And I, this is not tooting my own horn, but I'll, I'll tell you God-honest truth. If you take all the podcasts at 5 Minutes with Jack and you take the stuff that I do with people like John Pugliano on the air and the stuff I give on the air about business, the average person can do more for themselves from a business standpoint than they are going to do with a, a BA in business management. You might not get hired because of it, but you can do more for yourself with it. And that's just one avenue. And whether it's podcasts or interactive education or whatever, I can literally afford the very best teachers in the world where, before I couldn't. And we could package and distribute this, and we do not need anywhere near the headcount of teachers to get it done that we once did. And there could be all types of services and additional educational services that people can buy and pick and choose what they need a la carte versus being force-fed a buffet, which is what we've had. And whether you think it's good or not, the consequence is 
every day more people are going, I'm not sending my kid into the system anymore. And it's going to cascade. Ten years ago, you were weird. Be honest about it. I, I don't mean you actually were weird. I mean, society considered you odd. If you told people ten years ago, yeah, we homeschool. Oh, really? What about their social skills? Oh, wow. I feel sorry for them. How do you manage to do that? Today, when you tell somebody you homeschool, you know what people usually say? Wow, good for you. I wish I could do that. Because people have seen it. They've seen these kids tearing up science fairs, earning scholarships left and right, kicking ass and spelling bees, and in all these different academic uh, competitions. The homeschoolers are just whooping ass. And if they're winning 20% of the time and they're 2% of the population, that starts to get some attention. That's tenfold what the contemporaries are doing from the system we're told we have to have. And that number, it just keeps crawling upward and crawling upward, and I love it. I'm so excited about it. I believe the only way that this nation can evolve into its true destiny is for independent, critical thinking and critical learning to occur. And I do not believe a institutionalized school system can provide that. Because here's the reality. I, I know some of you are teachers. I know some of you don't like this. But this is let, let's, let's stop being emotional and start being critical thinking, logic-oriented logic individuals. You cannot tell me that when you are a fifth grade teacher and you look out and on one side of you is an athletic, highly functioning boy and right across from her in a desk is an introverted, short, wallflower little girl and right across from her is a, a nerdy, Glasses wearing, um, not quite fit in little boy like I was in fifth grade, because that's what I was. Okay? I wasn't by high school, but boy, in fifth grade, that's who I was. And then, so you can't say that I'm putting that kid down, because it was me. All right? And then over here is this, this kid that is creative to the point where he's sitting down and he's doing what you're called doodling, but he's doing art that you could never do. And that you could tell me that all four of those students are best served by the same education. Because they're not. Okay? They're just not. They are all not served best by the exact same uniform education. And in an institution, it is the only thing that you can do. You might throw in some uh, elective classes a little bit earlier. You might say if you're finished with your work, you can go read this and do it for extra. But you can't really tailor the education to those four, four individuals. And you would say, nobody can. And I would say, you are full of shit, you are a bullshit liar, if you say that, because your, your, your thinking has become so institutionalized that you cannot see outside of it to the reality of how to answer that question. And it is, no one can, but yes, they can. And it is that each one of those individuals can. That, that young, athletic, highly functioning, highly social individual can tailor his education to his needs. That young wallflower of a girl can tailor it to her needs. And she might actually find other people that are a lot more like her to communicate with and might come off of that wallflower stage. Or that, that dorky kid with glasses like I was might find by hanging out with kids that do stuff with Commodore computers back in the 80s like we were doing that... 
you can you can all of a sudden start to realize that hey, you know what? We can actually do all the other things all these other kids are doing. And next thing you know, you know that 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 highly athletic kid and me are playing basketball together, right? And I'm telling him how to install a, a system that will let him copy games because that's what actually happens, right? When when people start interacting. Now that didn't happen inside the walls of the school; it happened outside. So what if the school was never there? Only the education. This is where we're headed, and this thing where you start to see a school advertise for enrollment, don't underestimate what that means. This is how public school works. Unless you're in certain places. There's places like New York City where it's competitive to get into different schools, and different schools are competing for the best students and all. In general, public school across the country works this way. Your little Johnny, when he's old enough for kindergarten, is going to freaking go to school. And in 12th grade, after he graduates, he'll stop going. And every school he's going to go to is based on where he plants his butt at night when he goes to sleep, what zip code he's in, what region he's in, what district he's in, etc. And you have no choice, and there is no reason for advertising. None. Because you as a parent are required to put your child in school, and you're damn well going to do it, or we're going to fine you. It is only when parents start going, no, that schools have to start going, please put your kids in our classroom, and we'll watch it. Watch it over the next couple years. Watch it go into a frenzy. This is a giant beast, this educational institution. Now, again, if you're part of it, it's not about you. You're not a multi-billion dollar industry. You just have to be an employee or a participant in one that's going to die. It's going to die because it's outlived its usefulness. You don't think it's possible? You don't think it's going to happen. Keep your eye out for those signs. And if you are part of this system, start thinking about how you bring value to those you want to teach. Because many of you teach because you love to teach. How can you teach profitably and do more for your students than the state will allow you to do right now? You're going to get opportunities for it. But if you're going to cling to the old regime, I'm telling you, The head count in, you know, from kindergarten, from K to 12, the head count of employees in that sector will literally be cut in half over the next decade. And if it, if it doesn't happen then, it will be like this massive acceleration in the next five years after that. And I think a decade is, is, is maybe giving it more time than it has to be cut in half, not to be gone, but to be cut in half. Just start thinking about it. Who, who is it that five years from now is going to be enrolling children in kindergarten? Is it 40-somethings or is it 20-somethings? What is their opinion of public education? What is their opinion of the Internet? Those are your decision makers. The millennials, the millennials and in the tail end of Gen Y are your decision makers for students entering school in the next 10 years. Far more than we are. And part of why I believe it'll happen is I believe in them enough to believe they'll make a more intelligent choice based on what they know. It's not that we made the wrong choice 20 years ago. We made the only choice 20 years ago. Now there's thousands of choices. One of them just might be better than the one everybody already knows is the one you're supposed to do. 
I'm just saying, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're